Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this week didn't start very well for me. I did go to South Philly last Sunday with some of the kids, and the only thing worse than watching the Eagles lose the Super Bowl is getting rerouted 50 times through North Philadelphia on what became a two-hour drive home. But there was buffalo chicken dip, so not a total loss. Uh, Losing kind of sucks, doesn't it? And I know know some of you can relate. Joe can relate. He's a Giants fan. He knows. Um, we, we've, all, we've all had our lows, you know, we, we get it. Um, and losing an important game is particularly crushing, and it, and it feels like a punishment, and it doesn't really get easier with age. It hurts just as much now at 39 as it did when I was 9. Uh, so I spent a lot of that long ride home, you know, lamenting and thinking, like, what do I have to look forward to now? This whole week is all, like, just shot through, and nothing I was looking forward to seemed exciting anymore. And weeks like this are why God gave us parents. Uh, because I can, I can hear my, my parents, and especially mom, you know, especially moms who don't like sports. They have, they have two perennial favorites that they like to bring up. One is that it's only a game, right? And the corollary to that is it's not the end of the world, right? For the record, I know that, mom, and it doesn't really make me feel any better in the moment. Uh, losing the big game feels like the end of the road. There's no bouncing back next week. There's nothing you can do about it, right? And, and it feels like this unending punishment, right? You, you have to just kind of surrender in the moment. And there's a sense of shame that comes with it, you know? And for diehard fans, it feels like the end of the world, regardless of what mom said. Uh, because losing has consequences. Losing is a consequence, right? You know, I, I have to listen now to the mockery of not only the Chiefs fans, but also like resentful Cowboys fans and people like that, right? And this is going to last for months. And in those moments, I can only think back on the game and I think of all the mistakes that were made, all the things that went wrong. And I think to myself, there are very real consequences to those mistakes. And I don't like consequences. I bet Jonah didn't either. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today is consequences. There's, there's the crime We're coming up on the punishment, right? And Jonah is finally going to receive his spanking, so to speak. He has to sort of surrender here. And unlike a diehard Eagles fan, for Jonah, this really is essentially the end of the world. There's no off-ramp. There's no escape. There's no pain-free solution. It's too late to say, I'm sorry, as Justin Bieber would say. Jonah has gambled on escaping God, and he lost. 
He lost big time. And all those long miles to Joppa, how many times this is going to run through his head, right? He could have turned around at anywhere along that road, and he didn't. And now God has cornered him on the sea, where he has no escape, he has no way of going back. He's going to have to surrender and receive his spanking. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever received a spanking, not just the kids, but I know some of you parents, right? I'm going to go ahead and assume you earned the majority of those. Um, I know I did. If you're like me, you earned more than you got. Um, So, you know, what's the worst part of receiving a spanking? There's several things. I mean, aside from the pain, right? I I think it's the shame of it, right? Uh, The punishments are always embarrassing. Uh, In my house, it was also the waiting, because, you know, mom, mom would be busy explaining exactly why she's about to do what she's about to do, you know, and then sometimes she would make you, you know, verbally admit that you, you earned this one and that kind of thing, you know. I remember one of my kids, who will remain nameless, had a bad habit of coloring on walls when she was young. And um, I knew she was starting to understand the gospel because uh, well, the one day when this happened, I asked her, you know, why did you color on that wall again? And through tears, she said, because I'm bad, she said. <laughs> and I thought to myself, that's the first step towards knowing that you need a savior, admitting you're a sinner. Okay. Um, but punishments are always hard. No one looks forward to consequences. We only do, we provide these consequences to our kids because we love them. As George always says, our goal is to create, uh, to raise kids that people will like. So that's why we do these things, right? But um, today, as as Jonah is facing his punishment, what's it for? He he was running from God, and then he got caught, and we saw last week he made a confession. He he finally did something right in verse 9. But as it turns out, sin still has consequences, How many of you know and can testify that sin has real-world consequences? Yeah. Does admitting that you were wrong fix all the damage from your sin? No. Admitting you sinned is only one step in repentance, and not every story ends with a hug at the end of a half hour like a 90s sitcom, right? Like I said last week. If this was an episode of Full House, now is when the sappy music would start and God would give Jonah a big hug and tell him everything's going to be okay, right? In sitcoms, confession typically results in at most a slap on the wrist, but that's not what happens always in real life. And it's certainly not what happens to Jonah. Jonah is forced into a complete surrender, and it's a humiliating thing. Uh, But... Just as we were observing that there is no such thing ultimately as private sin, uh, there is ultimately no such thing as private repentance either. Even the consequences of sin ultimately become public. And it's not always in front of a sympathetic crowd. Uh, C.S. Lewis once wrote about the idea of surrender in a Christian life, and I don't remember which book it was, but he said that you know if he ever did kill a man, the right thing to do as a Christian would be to go and confess, even though you knew it would mean being hanged in those days when they still did that kind of thing. And I think he's right. Uh, self-preservation is less important than being righteous, right? And that's the Christian way. We confess our sins and we accept the worldly consequences. We understand that Jesus has already taken the eternal punishment for our sins, but that doesn't mean that all temporal punishments are removed. There are still real consequences in the here and now. 
and Jonah knows the consequences are real. And it's about to get ugly for him because the only way the storm will stop is if Jonah stops sinning. And that means you have to understand, Jonah is in sin every second that he spends on this boat. And there's only one way off the boat, and it doesn't look like a very promising route, does it? So the sailors ask him pretty directly, right? They said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Like, the sailors are doing simple math here. Like, our problem is the storm. The cause of the problem is you. What do we have to do to make the problem go away? And I love that they don't beat around the bush. Jonah's the problem, so he's obviously the key to fixing it. So they don't ask Jonah, like, what should we do in a sort of broad category? What shall we do to you to make this stop? You created this mess. What are we going to have to do to you to make it go away? And Jonah, surprisingly... In another good moment for Jonah, there are precious few, a good moment for Jonah, he gives a very direct answer. What what does he say? He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. It's interesting that Jonah uses this similar language we saw earlier. Don't just toss me in the sea or let me, you know, know, just give me a little nudge or something. Hurl me into the sea, just like God hurled the storm at the ship. Throw me in and do it like you mean it. Jonah realizes that this is the only answer. He isn't given a chance at leisurely repentance here, right? Uh, That chance was lost long ago. The easy button was left behind at Joppa. The boat can't drop him off in the nearest harbor so he can hitch a camel home or something, right? There's no lifeboat. There are no life preservers. There is no easy way to do this. The only way out is the sea. And Jonah could have made a certain logical case that, well, like, look, I can't help sinning at this point, right? He can't exactly pull the emergency brake. If he wanted to turn around with this storm going on, like, we can't even do that. I can't even talk them into turning the boat around. In fact, for Jonah to finally do what God commanded is actually impossible, it seems, at this point, right? But part of what we're learning here is that God doesn't allow us to use impossible as an excuse for sinning. There is never a legitimate time to say, I just can't help it. God is telling Jonah to turn around now. You sinned by getting on the boat You can stop sinning by getting off. And Jonah could start bargaining with God, like, well, look, wouldn't it make more sense, you know, calm the storm down a little bit, we'll turn around, we'll go back, I'll talk them into it, and maybe they could drop me in Italy, I'll I'll catch a caravan back, uh, or I can plant a church in Tarshish, Lord, Uh, I'll do a really good job, I'm going to plant a huge church, it's going to be great, there's got to be good work we can do out this way, Lord, you know. uh, But Jonah doesn't bother negotiating at this point. Because complete and total surrender is the only way out, and he knows it. And God is demanding immediate obedience. I don't remember when Georgia first read it in some book, but there's a phrase that she started using when the kids were little a bit, that delayed obedience is disobedience. And um, it's therefore always been sort of like a pet peeve for her, for people that, that, that count to three for their kids. 
uh, because like what do kids do when you count to three? They wait till two and a half, and then they move, right? Um, George is not a counter. My kids get until the count of now with a yes mom attached to it is preferable. Uh, God doesn't count either, and Jonah realizes that. So he tells the sailors, just chuck me into the sea. It's, it's your only way out. Now, I just want to take a moment because I don't think we can possibly emphasize enough how scary this concept must be for Jonah. Because I want you to think a little bit in terms of an Old Testament Jew, an Israelite. Because in Old Testament cosmology, water is not your friend. The sea really is the end of the world. In much of the Bible, the sea represents chaos and disorder, and it starts from the very beginning. Before God created land, in Genesis 1, the text says that the earth was tohu and bohu, is what it says in, 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 in Hebrew, and, and it, it's translated as formless and void. Uh, water covers everything on the earth, and what's the main characteristic up until that point is that there's nothing living there. And you see this again in the time of Noah. The waters become a tool of judgment, and once again, there's nothing left alive on the earth. Water in Scripture, and especially in the Old Testament, it means chaos and judgment. But it carries over into the, the New Testament as well, but, but really throughout. It's God's, part, of, part of what you see about that is that when God demonstrates his mastery over the sea, that is the greatest testament possible to his greatness. It's a recurring theme throughout scripture. So when he divides the Red Sea, that's like putting an exclamation point on the Exodus. And when he calms, when Jesus calms the waves with the disciples, right, or in one instance walks on them, right, he is showing himself to be a master over this chaos. And it's not for nothing that even when you get to Revelation, in Revelation 21, the new earth is described as having no sea. In other words, paradise has no ocean. There's no chaos anymore. So the sea has always represented this untamable wilderness. It's been the death of countless mariners. Who can know how many bodies lie at the bottom of the sea, right? The sea is unconquerable. No one can plant a flag on the sea. Nobody can fully control it. Most of the earth is covered by this water that we can't drink or live in. And modern science hasn't really changed that calculus too much. The sea is still not that friendly. If you've ever seen Jaws, I know that's fictional, but uh, how about Titanic or The Perfect Storm? Or if you watch a few episodes of The Deadliest Catch, then you'll know that this is true. People still die on the sea. And there are still sea monsters. You can laugh, but... You know, like giant squid, right? They're 40 feet long. They have eyes that are a foot across. That's messed up. <laughs> they were not caught on film until 2012. Scientists thought once they discovered that, they figured, okay, the giant squid, that explains all the sea monster sightings and all of the old records and everything else throughout history, right? And then they found an even bigger squid arm in the belly of a sperm whale. 
They call that now the colossal squid. They still don't know its exact size for sure. If you've ever looked up some of these crazy things that live down there, like Japanese spider crabs, they have like a 12-foot leg span. The lion's mane jellyfish, the top of it is 7 feet across and its tendrils go down 120 feet. Even little stuff. There was some critter that Jacob showed me on, online that he had to study in class, and it's, it's like a thing that looks like a lobster, and it punches hermit crab shells and breaks them open, but it has a harder punch than any other creature in the known world. It actually, when you slow it down, it actually sparks underwater, and they say that the temperature of the water directly around the punch exceeds the surface of the sun. It's messed up. <laughs> It's weird down there, and that's just the stuff we know about. Because, of course, when you get to the really bottom of the sea, down in the trenches, right, the sea is completely black. We have almost no way of doing any thorough studies of it because when they put equipment down there, it explodes under the pressure because down at some points it's like over 16,000 PSI. So we don't know everything that's down there, but things do live there. And what we do know is, frankly, kind of freaky. And Jonah doesn't have the benefit of Wikipedia and National Geographic, so he can only imagine what's down there, right? You know, to this day, if someone dies on the high seas, they can still, they, sometimes they'll weigh the body, right, and they'll sink it. That's the old Navy thing, and they call it burial at sea. So you think of all the bodies down there, and that's what Jonah's asking for at this point. Like, he's actually asking, bury me at sea. And... What's scary for that is that it's not legitimate even by Jewish standards because the sea is worse than a grave. In the Old Testament, where you were buried matters. They lugged, not for nothing, that they lugged Joseph's bones around all over the place for centuries just so that they could make sure that they eventually buried him in the promised land, right? And to this day, Judaism is not in, it's not, it doesn't allow for burial at sea. Uh, I once read an article about uh, Israel lost a, a submarine in 1968, and to this day it is still their official policy is to recover that eventually so that they can get the bodies out of it and put them in the ground because that's what would be proper. So the Jews take this whole to dust you shall return thing very seriously. And then Jonah says, just toss me in. Jacob asked me an obvious question this week. He said, do you think Jonah could swim? I'm thinking not. I'm thinking that pools would not have been a common luxury in northern Israel. I'm thinking Jonah didn't live near a beach. And I'm thinking that swimming is something of a sort of bougie hobby that, you know, Americans engage in and that kind of thing. But it, it also doesn't matter because he's so many miles from anywhere that what's the relevance of it in this storm? And then another question occurred to me, though, is Jonah actually suicidal? I mean, it's, it's possible, right? He, ha he has no reason to expect mercy at this point. I'm thinking he thinks he's going to die. And if he can't swim, maybe he's already resigned himself to that fate. He might feel like there's some poetry in this whole thing. I'm actually reading Crime and Punishment right now. I'm trying to keep up with Grace in the depressing Russian novels. I have a ways to go yet. The crime happened finally, but I'm waiting for the punishment. Uh, but the one thing that is very clear is that guilt becomes its own punishment. That much is becoming obvious. 
living with the knowledge of what you've done can be a very hard thing. And so, yeah, maybe Jonah could be suicidal in this moment, but maybe it's more twisted than that, I thought. Maybe Jonah thinks, this is how I'm finally going to get away from God. I'll finally get away from the God who's hounding me. Uh, No more talk about Nineveh, no running, no more pagan sailors, no more nothing. And that's always the false promise of suicide, that you're going to finally escape and that your problems will all be over as if you don't still have to face God and the judgment. And maybe the sailors can sense that this guy, Jonah, maybe has a death wish. Maybe that's what they're thinking because he's not talking sense. And they start to think, like, we got to save him. So verse 13 says, Nevertheless, the men rode hard, dug in, as it says in the Hebrew, to get back to dry land, but they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Now, I I know, if you're the sailors here, this is driven partly by self-interest. You know, if Yahweh is causing the storm, maybe you're a little afraid to throw the only Jew on the ship into the sea because maybe that'll make him even more angry. I don't know. But I think it's far more likely that these guys are actually not all bad. I think that they've probably come to kind of like Jonah on some level. But the author wants us to see a couple of things clearly in this passage. One is that the sailors have no desire to kill Jonah. And what he's trying to make clear here is that this is not a murder. But the author also wants us to know that this is not, in fact, a suicide either. Jonah is volunteering to take his spanking, and that's different. Now, why do I say that? I say that because you have to recognize he doesn't jump in himself. He could have done that at any moment here. There's nothing stopping him. But he doesn't jump in. He wants them to do it. If he did jump in, that would be suicide. But he wants them to do it because that's what God's justice demands. He wants them to go through with this thing. If suicide is a form of escapism, self-pity and self-hate, that's not true in godly repentance. That's what the Apostle Paul calls worldly sorrow. What Jonah wants here is a proper punishment. He wants to finally face the music to get what he deserves. And I think the fact that he asked them to do that says to me that that this indicates to me that his repentance in this moment is genuine. It comes awfully late. But I think he means it. And I think he's ready to face these consequences of his sin. Now, of course, the sailors don't like the idea of being Jonah's executioner. They didn't ask for that role. They would much rather drop him off somewhere and wash their hands of the situation. So they dig in and they try their darndest to get to shore. But how does God respond to that? He turns up the volume. The harder they row, the stronger the wind and the bigger the waves, right? Because God's justice is not going to be ignored, not by Jonah, not by them. God demands complete and total surrender, even if it is the end of the world. And just when the sailors give up, a miracle happens. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Did you catch the miracle? Trick question, there were two. The storm stopped. That's good. The more remarkable miracle happens before that in verse 14. 
the sailors start praying to God. Our God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. The word Lord, when it appears in all caps in your Bible, is a shorthand for Yahweh, for I am. It is God's personal name that he declared to Moses from the burning bush. It is a Hebrew word. It is a very unique name. They are not calling out to some generic Lord out there, is my point. They are talking to the Hebrew God who Jonah says made the sea and the dry lands, not one or the other, but both, and he obviously controls the skies too, as you can observe from the storm. And notice, too, that they don't beg Jonah to intercede and talk to God for them. They approach the throne themselves. They come as complete strangers, and it takes faith to address the unknown God, but they do it. And I notice, too, that they don't actually beg God to stop the storm. They beg him not to view them as murderers, but as instruments of justice with Jonah. They are more concerned with their sin than with survival. Which means that Jonah's late, pathetic, weak confession has completely had this unexpected effect of leading these pagan sailors to the throne of the true God seeking mercy. They are putting Jonah in God's hands and they beg God to have mercy on them. And that is a clearer example of repentance than Jonah has shown so far. It's a remarkable prayer. It's one of the most remarkable things in a remarkable book. And so they reluctantly but obediently hurl Jonah into the sea, and the sea becomes still. Now we could chalk all this up to the actions of desperate men praying because they had to, but if there was any doubt as to the sincerity of their prayers, what do they do once the sea is calm and Jonah's not there anymore? In verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They fear the Lord. Now, fear would seem to be a strange thing to experience here because you would think, why would the fear increase when the sea is now calm? Wouldn't you think now is the time to breathe a sigh of relief? Like, why be afraid when the danger has passed? But no, they now fear the Lord. And it's the same reason that the disciples were afraid when Jesus calmed the storm. It's a fear that recognizes that they're in the presence of the Holy One. This is the third time we've been told that the sailors were afraid, but this is the first time we're directly told that they fear the Lord. Their fear is becoming progressively healthier. It's not an unhealthy fear of the enemy. That terror has been replaced now with reverence and awe. Their fear has progressed from a survival instinct to a holy reverence. It's gone from this unhealthy fear to a healthy fear in the course of a morning. Animal-like fear to childlike faith. And we know that faith is genuine because they respond in worship. Even in Jonah's absence, they don't even know what to make of this God. I mean, if you can imagine a crew of pagan sailors on the open sea breaking out in worship of the one true God, I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine a stranger scene. What does it actually look like? 
it kind of looks like pagans trying their best. They offer a sacrifice to the Lord with whatever animal they haven't thrown overboard yet. (laughs) And they make vows. And we can assume these were vows to the Lord. We don't take many vows in life. Uh, We swear to tell the truth in court, right, if we get dragged down for jury duty. We make wedding vows, church membership vows. Some of us have taken ordination vows. Vows are very biblical. They shouldn't be taken lightly. Our culture doesn't really understand vows much anymore. Our politicians make vows to uphold the Constitution, but we expect them to lie to us, don't we? I think most of us almost prefer it that way. We make wedding vows still, but given the divorce rate, it doesn't seem like we take those terribly seriously as a culture. But vows are not meant to be emotional promises. Vows mean keeping a promise at any cost. Vows in scripture are often accompanied by promises of death and cursing if I fail. Vows mean surrendering our independence and making permanent commitments. The ancient world understood this much better than we did, and here you have these sailors making vows on the sea. That sounds to me like a pretty genuine conversion experience. Because it's not like anyone was there to force them to do this. This whole event has turned their world upside down. They've lost all the cargo, possibly their entire livelihood, but their lives are spared and their very souls have been saved. Jonah's repentance, though it came disgracefully late and probably sounded stupid, still led these sailors to fear the Lord, and his willingness to face God's justice brought them to genuine faith in the God of Israel. Jonah completely surrendered, and unbelievers saw it, and it left an impression And I would say that when we live lives of repentance and confession, it points people around us to Christ. They will not come to the kingdom because you are perfect. They'll come because you're the kind of person who admits that you're not. When you surrender to God, it inspires similar repentance in others. And it was a heavy thing to do because Jonah has no idea what God is going to do next. God did not promise to rescue him. He didn't tell him the whole plan, did he? There's no talk of second chances or a soft landing. God's only communication so far has been through the waves and the storm. And Jonah has every reason to believe that he's at the end of the road, the end of the world, but he is ready to praise God in his death even if he hasn't done so very well in his life. It requires faith to repent and even more so to surrender to God's correction. To take the spanking you deserve with humility is not painless or simple, but it does glorify God. And I think we can take from this that it leads others to do the same. So how can we apply this? It's very simple. If you don't know the Lord, and you're still living in that unhealthy fear, then you have to learn from these pagan sailors, because they didn't have a great evangelist or a great example set in front of them. But they feared God because he is just and because he is mighty. And they came and they worshipped him. And you can learn from that because they, you have no worthwhile sacrifices to offer. And your promises really aren't worth a whole lot. But what I learned from this passage is that he receives worship even from the lowly and the ignorant. He'll accept that. And in Christ, he shows mercy to those who ask for it. But if you already belong to Christ, if you are, in fact, a servant of God, 
then I think this passage calls you to glorify God, not only in your confession, like we talked about last week, but also in your submission to God's corrective hand. That's not easy. But don't be afraid to receive the spanking. Because as the author of Hebrews reminds us, he says it this way, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. If you are going through a season of consequences, God is treating you as sons and as daughters. And he does it for your good. And the gospel is this, beloved, that God is still not done with Jonah. We haven't even gotten to the famous part yet that you all learned when you were kids. But God's mercy is already clear. Amen? His mercy has been to make Jonah's life an absolute misery when he was running away. That is God's mercy. Consequences are a blessing. Because he will not leave his sons and daughters to wallow in their rebellion. He disciplines his children because he loves them. And he will be glorified in them sooner or later. And that's good news, even if it's hard. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have all been there and can testify that our sin has consequences. We know that it endangers ourselves, it endangers others, Lord. It causes pain in the here and now and sometimes a a lasting stinging. And Lord, we know that it is wrapped up in the curse because we are sinners. But Lord, we also recognize that pain is there to remind us that something is wrong. And the consequences come from you because you love us. So teach us not to run from them. Teach us to learn from them and to embrace them, Lord, and to do so graciously in a way that when people see the way that we submit to your hand, it leaves an impression. Teach us to live in submission to you, Lord, even this week and going forward. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God.